This is Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open-plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. Welcome to Linux and Laws, Season 1, Episode 91. Martin, how are things? Yeah, things are good. Sun shining. It's warmer than in the rest of Europe. So, well, what more do you want? Excellent. Uh, no fires, also, which is good. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course, we're recording this uh, December 2027, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Martin has just invig reinvigorated his time traveling device. Yes, it's <laughs> damn handy that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but today is not about uh, time traveling devices, hmm. funny enough, but rather about something called software quality. Ah, before before we do that, yes. Jim, how are you? How are you? Can't complain, Martin. Can't complain. Okay, I'm not. I'm not That's time traveling, so all is good. So I'm well, not creating. Depends anything. how you look at it. It could be good and bad. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so many advantages. That I, uh, yeah. yeah, that I create any conundrums by changing the past and so forth are pretty minimal because, as I said, okay. I'm time traveling. Excellent. Or change the future or something like that, which is always which is which always carries the risk of doing so if you try and travel. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, if you if you do have these um, encountered these <laughs> risks, do do send some feedback. It'll <laughs> <laughs> be interesting to hear. But anyway, okay, back to the topic we had, namely software quality, Martin. So, what mm. exactly is software quality? Yeah. Well, software quality, uh, it's a good question. It's a measure of um, how well it works, I guess. Excellent. Or not, the case. So you, you, you write a piece of software, you do, the quality, you do the documentation, you probably do some testing, and then you find out the shit doesn't work. But it's usually afterwards is when the users complain, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. uh, so software quality... In contrast, I reckon to to the to the popular um, impression is actually rather a kind of ongoing process, I suppose. Yeah, well, this is why we have releases, right? Releases are not just for features, but also for well, releases. Hmm. Releases are more for bug fixes, I guess. Patches are more. Uh, sorry, releases are more for features. Bug fixes are more um, done in patches, right? Yeah. So software software quality, I would I, I reckon. Hmm. Is, a, is a process framework, so to speak, that consists of multiple components and software testing, I suppose, is, is just one of them. So, for yeah, example, how, sure. how, you measure, hmm. how you measure quality of code as hmm. static code analysis is, 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 I reckon, also a metric that you can use in order to assess software quality. How well the documentation is written, how well you actually do the software testing, how you scope a project and all the rest of it. Mm. Yeah, I guess in in short, you can say that the um, the quality is 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 as good as the uh, 
the testing framework or the defined test, right? If you, <laughs> you know, if you release something and you zero test, then you can imagine that there will be um, certain things not right with it. Um, and yeah, the more testing you do, or the more tests you define, more importantly, um, the more you can make sure that the product does what it's meant to do. Yeah, and testing, of course, is not in that case defined to just code, but rather also, as I said, to the documentation mm. and to other any project, any any other any aspect of the product that you're actually producing. So, record usability, for example, as in how well mm. a user yeah. can interact with the software, is also part of the overall software quality assessment process. But also how how well the documentation is written, uh, how deeply actually have you tested the software and all the rest of it hmm. how how well the overall project is documented these are all these are all these are all parts of of software of the overall software quality of a project as in yeah. i'm almost tempted to say it's just not software quality it's rather just project quality and that encompasses the software the process the product and all the rest of it i suppose no for sure for sure as you say those other aspects are also very important well, we kind of set the scene, right? About um, yes. So uh, going on to go, going over now to maybe software testing. Um, or should we discuss yeah. something else first? Well, I mean, testing is one aspect, right? It's yes. um, uh, okay. Maybe we let, let's talk about the whole process from from beginning to end, perhaps in a, okay. in short. Okay, let's use the popular example of an money laundering application i uh -huh. you take you take some money and you want to launder it yeah. say 30 uh, 30 degrees kind of cold with kind of drying afterwards as in tumbling hmm. so no not traditionally done with software though is it <laughs> <laughs> there are other ways i believe no i mean one... joke, jokes jo yeah. jokes jokes aside imagine a, an application that takes a cup of bit well not Bitcoins don't need to be laundered, I suppose, but take but takes a wallet in terms of a an existing currency and want and and kind of just the laundering automatically. Let's put it this way, using an elaborate framework of banks, clearinghouse, and all the rest of it. Mm. So you start actually with, I reckon the young kids would start the the agile kids would start this actually with defining a couple of use cases. As in, a user wants to launder a certain amount of, of 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 currency, and then the input would be the currency, maybe also the way that it should be laundered. For example, not using one or two specific bands, banks, but rather alternatives, and the output then would be assets that the money has been turned into. Okay. Like yeah like bitcoins, like gold, what have you. And the app, and the app. Have you got a name for it yet? Yeah. Yeah, what about ML? Not <laughs> is, is this your pet, pet, pet project? Can't <laughs> <laughs> you talk about this? <laughs> okay, I reckon with that, you would also start, because Agile normally means that you don't add the software testing at the very end, but you do this in a what the kids, I reckon, call test-driven development, i.e. Mm -hmm. you program the test cases alongside your code block. But before we even go there, 
we have just defined use cases. So we kind of define the testing strategy, I suppose. That yeah, you, in fact, you write the test before the code, in fact. So. Exactly. So, but first of all, we define an overall test strategy, I suppose, where the test-driven development is at the very core. And as Martin has just pointed out, test-driven development, that means basically you write the test case before you actually write the code. Development goes back, I think, to the 80s or 70s. Links maybe in the show notes. A guy called a guy called Kent Beck actually did the first book on this, if I'm completely mistaken, or one of the first books. Maybe I'm hmm. wrong. Okay, now we have defined a couple of user stories. We have we have defined a couple of user stories. Let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. So what we do then? We also have defined a little bit of our testing strategy, but we still need many more things to do. Well, it's the whole, uh, let's say, um, the development and release pipeline, right? For because we can't just, yeah, just build some software and then then what, right? It has mm. to be, uh, it has to run somewhere. It has to be released somewhere. It has to be um, obviously before it gets released, it typically gets tested. But um, yeah, defining from uh, yeah. Yeah, writing the stuff to actually running it in production scenario. I mean, no, I mean it happened. Yeah, that, that's absolutely spot on. And, and I reckon these days, uh, a, a central core of, or a central aspect rather of the whole thing is actually how you want to use this. So let's let's imagine for, for the purpose of this example that this is actually a cloud-based service that is offered on the darknet. Okay. So that means that you have, I reckon these days that would boil on to continuous integration and continuous deployment. Okay, so maybe you need to expand on that a bit more. Why why do we need this continuous um, deployment? Because as soon as you develop a new feature, you do the quality assurance on this, and then you release it. Mm. Um, because it's, you want to, yeah? Yeah, it's a little bit more than that because, um, the, well, lots of the... Modern software development happens um, not so much in in let's define everything at the start. It's more like let's get a product out with minimal features and then um, start adding stuff. But at least we have um, a product out there and we can add things as we get feedback from users as well. So that's it. So that's why you need this continuous, um, let's say, uh, release pipeline. Yes, what Martin has just described is basically the agile journey from hmm. something called a minimal viable project, a product as an MVP, uh, to something which is much more feature complete and much more elaborate. But essentially what you do is you start out with a kind of minimalistic implementation of a software base What that does probably just one thing very redundantly in terms of it takes a summer, it takes it takes a certain amount of 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 cash and just launders it but does it only with one bank and produces only gold or something like this mm. and then you would expand that code base by also incorporating other outputs other forms of output like bitcoin like cars like expensive watches you name it yeah yeah, so in, in contrast, uh, in the olden days, um, we used to have what's called waterfall development, yes. right? So, Martin, do, uh, because you're probably a little bit older, <laughs> so why don't you explain what waterfall is? Uh, well, in a nutshell, it's really um, you 
take that whole process uh, in stages. So first of all, you write down your requirements, then your requirements go into design. Uh, your design goes into an implementation, and then your implementation goes into a testing phase. Uh, finally, gets released. So that's typically a so you, rather than just opposed to the MVP approach and and just get something out there and add stuff as you go along, you define all your problems at the start and. It takes, therefore, a lot longer as well to get something out, and it may not be the right product or anymore by the time it comes out, and um, yeah, or it may be already built by someone else, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, and of course, the advantage of doing a waterfall pro uh, of doing a project in a waterfall fashion means hmm. that you probably only have one release per year, and getting a new feature into into a release takes another year. Hmm. So that's that's not exactly tied in with the famous change request. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's probably not tied in with the fast-moving pace of what is now known as as the cloud or some other hipster deployment scenario, it's because competition is always out there, right? So Indeed. people want to want to want to add features as they go along, and they don't want to wait for a year in terms of uh, that feature to appear in the code base. Okay, you, so you've you've defined the scope for an MVP. You probably have started to do some initial design. Very important. At some stage, you probably want to think about the architecture in terms of how you want to deploy this on the dark net, mm. what sort of cloud you want to use, and all the rest of it. And then what? Well, you got to write the stuff as well, uh, <laughs> or, 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 or use some kind of uh, GPT engineer. Um, stuff to do it for you but uh, okay. yeah. so you decide on implementation technology um <laughs> like a programming like a particular programming language like programming language framework or Rust, yeah. whatever yeah. exactly framework yeah. libraries and, yeah yes and then basically you because you're using test of development you essentially hmm. start writing tests that reflect initial use cases yeah uh well the, the tests come really before the design, really, um, you know, because you've you've defined your use case, so your use case is yes. Uh, something goes in, this comes out, so you can define your tests along those lines. Yes, we should probably actually also define the three different uh, parts of the overall quality software testing sequence, which is uh, unit test, integration test, and actually it's four um, system test, as also known as end to end, and of course user mm. acceptance. But you wanna you wanna take us take us through them? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, okay, well, so your unit test is obviously if your code is made up of multiple uh, pieces, services, um, whatever you want to call it, uh, the smallest, let's say, thing you can test, um, whether it's a function or a, uh, a, a library of functions, or uh, you know that each of those could be considered a unit and you test those in isolation. Uh, let's take a simple example, right? You you have a function that does a mean or something, fine, you put something in, comes, something comes out, is that uh, actually the desired result? Um, then you can put all those functions into a library, you could do, um, do they call that a unit, do a whole test suite for the whole library, and then the next one is really the um, uh, the, the uh, where the, the units, uh, let's say, interact with each other. So uh, rather than testing your your mean in isolation, it's like process X is relying on the mean function and therefore it's putting in these values uh, and does something else with it so on. So it's, is that in combination still working? Um, 
where were we? Uh, you just described the initial stages of arachno of system integration. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. And then, yeah, so that obviously system integration is also the external part. You know, if we're using uh, external APIs uh, for banks or whatever, then we want to test that part as well. So everywhere where your your piece of code is really interacting with, let's say, uh, not the code itself, right? External bits to, to your code is your system integration testing. Yeah. Mm, yes. And the final part, I reckon, is is user acceptance. Hmm. Yeah, this is where Chris sits behind his terminal and puts his 10 Bitcoin in and some gold comes out. <laughs> <laughs> and Martin, uh, what, what hasn't been discussed at this point uh -huh. in time is a vital ingredient along this, oh, along this sequence. Well, uh -huh. praying, is, praying is very important because as you progress <laughs> along that line, and I'm, and I'm going to explain why that is in a minute, um, you're relying more and more on, on, on components that other people pro probably have written because, mm. especially if you talk about libraries as in third-party components, you do not, you did not author that code, this, but rather somebody mm. else did. Yep. Now, uh, you just you just can hope that the quality assurance of that external of that external component has been done properly, and this is basically where praying comes in. So with the ah. with the, with the <laughs> unit testing, you have written the code yourself, so you know how shitty or how good that is. <laughs> uh, well, you, you don't know until you test it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you still have control over it, so you can re okay, so you okay. can refine the implementation, I suppose. Mm. But the more you rely on external components, and that's probably the the ultimate case is actually user acceptance, where somebody else tests that code or that product for you. Mm -hmm. uh, the more the magic comes in, in terms of you lose control to a certain extent of what you can do and what you cannot do, because normally user acceptance would mean the line of business or we have a fund that project has a, has a couple of ideas how that project how that outcome should mm. work yeah so this is what i mean by by use cases in terms of what the kids call i think stories if i'm completely mistaken in a, in a more mm. agile context where you and the and the example that I just gave initially when I described the MVP is probably the starting point for this. You want to launder one unit of currency into gold or something like that, and if then half of the money disappears because the whole thing doesn't work, that's not great. Yeah, and so a fail. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So um, before you would even start programming, you want to make sure is that you that the MVP covers the most important uh, stories or use cases, mm. because otherwise the user acceptance test won't fly. Yeah, uh, and yeah, what usually happens is that um, uh, your your programmer or programmers don't think about all the cases that your users do. Um, they have different interpretations right of what it should look like, and that's yeah. where. Why testing is also important. I reckon that goes back to the to the overall agile approach because when Martin described the waterfall model, that was actually back done in the old back in the olden days. Like, <laughs> well, it's not that long 20, ago. <laughs> 20, 15 years ago, uh, where you had actually separate separate IT organizations, the, yes. which are which were separated from the lines of business, and the lines of business had some vague idea of what a software product would do or should do rather, mm. then they would write this down in an ideal case, and then IT would do something. 
And just about two years later, um, IT would ship something, mm. and the LOB would come come with linchpins and pitchforks and all the rest of it, kind of trying to crucify the IT because a it took way too long as as it was the case then. And the scope, mm. because maybe of poor definition, because due to poor definition or maybe due to poor implementation of the overall requirements, was also not great because the LOB had something to, completely different in mind. Yeah, and that's exactly what you prevent to a certain extent with more agile approaches. Mm. We have shorter implementation cycles. For example, Scrum says something. The ideal sprint, which is an implementation period in in the Scrum methodology, is about a fortnight. Yeah, two so weeks. exactly. So you cannot kind of diverge that much within two weeks because yeah, it, at, I, at, at worst you wasted two weeks of work. Right? Exactly. At the end of every sprint, basically, what you do is you sit down with the so-called product owner, which normally represents the business, and goes through the outcome of the sprint. As Martin just rightly observed, if this sprint didn't go according to plan. You have just waited two two weeks, but the project, but the overall project is still somewhat on track. Yep. Uh, where were we again? We were discussing the life cycle of a ah yes, the various testing phases. Exactly. Stuff. Yeah. So, uh, yes, Carol. So user acceptance is is just almost upon us. Uh, Martin has. Of course, or, or the or the programmers have used the Bible to a certain extent, or whatever religion they 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 subscribe to, and never stop praying, hoping that at the end of the day, user acceptance testing will be a success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, in a, in an agile world, of course, user acceptance is normally quite—I wouldn't say small—but due to the overall involvement of the business as a line of business. User acceptance testing is, I reckon, based on the continuous development. Uh, I wouldn't say limited, but also somewhat interactive. Because what you would normally do is, once you've completed a sprint, added a new feature, you would normally plan for a user for, for a very short user acceptance phase at the very end of said sprint, or maybe just shortly afterwards, depending on how it's structured. Yeah. So you wouldn't have that kind of couple of months long user acceptance phase that you would typically have with a waterfall model where a line of business would take the overall code base and would test it inside out. Because with agile approaches you do not have that Chinese wall between the business and the and the and the and the, and the RT that implements the code base. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So would right. it make sense? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, user acceptance has passed, everybody's happy, so now what? Uh, well, then you come to release it. And then you pray again, exactly. Use. <laughs> uh, that's where the, the bugs happen. <laughs> uh, for all the tests that you haven't written. <laughs> I mean, normally uh, you would ensure, uh, due to communication between the business side and the, and the implementation um, people, that you would have a sign-off on, 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 the, on the scope of the use cases that you're about to test during the various sprint cycles uh, prior mm. before you even start. So if there's a use case missing, uh, that shouldn't happen because normally any stakeholder involved would review the 
story or use case document before before even implementation starts in terms of do the use cases cover the functionality starting with the MVP and reaching right down to the very final product what we uh, that we anticipate in terms of are we are we are we complete with regards to the overall scope of the of the story of of the, of the of the stories or use cases versus the feature set that we're going to implement mm. so the, so the chances that an important use case is missing is probably very slim in that case because everybody has signed off on on that testing document yeah yes but that doesn't mean that all the tests are actually been thought about right that's the no, I mean especially as we all know the old the old what's called not parental rule. I can't remember the exact name of of that rule, but about twenty percent mm. of the in, of the overall effort of implementing a code base is mm. done during the initial implementation phase. About eighty percent is actually <laughs> on something called ASM application support and maintenance. Mm. You mean bug fixing? Yeah, uh, bug fixing, adding additional features, and all the rest of it. Mm. I think it's called parental, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, not sure. Links kids may or may not be in the show notes. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Uh, we have now released this pro- this this uh, overall product, uh, somewhat feature complete, to mm. the dark web. Have pointed all the relevant search engines on the dark web to that money laundering project, and now. Despite initial projections, this project is really taking off. Everybody, right. Word and Dog are trying to launder money with it. <laughs> Needless to say, that uptake wasn't in, wasn't anticipated by the business yeah. uh, that funded the project. Never mind the the IT who designed and implemented only a limited amount of scalability. Mm. But this code base now is re- uh, but this product is really now exploding in terms of popularity. So, what we're going to do now? I mean, we have, uh, we have we have we have three options, right? We can stay the way it is. The campus uh, can stay the way it is, meaning because we get a percentage of any money laundered, the business mm-hmm. will only grow linearly, not exponentially, because we can only serve so much, so many users. Okay. We can take the project down, meaning we don't get any we don't get any percentage because mm. project the, 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 the product isn't there anymore, or we can try to scale up in terms of we have to modify the code base so that it can ah, but do grow we? with the exponential take up in do the marketplace. We, we? Did we write it with scalability in mind in the first place? <laughs> This is actually a very good question. <laughs> Was that a user story or not? Very not. You so see, yeah, we imagine, have to. Re- <laughs> you see, Martin. Imagine it wasn't yeah. because the okay. business was almost kind of halfway asleep because they didn't anticipate uh-huh. that pickup. So the IT didn't have it, or, or the implementing people didn't have it on the radar. So, but we, have, but we, but now we are in that conundrum, basically, that we have to do something about it. Okay. So we go back to the drawing board, and now we incorporate a much more scalable approach, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So we that means revisiting the architecture, revisiting the design, mm-hmm. and then of course changing the bits and pieces that need changing. But yeah. we also want to make sure, 
actually that these enhanced scalability requirements find their way into the user stories. Mm, indeed. So I reckon performance testing, which to a great part is how a code base reacts to, to scalability issues, yeah. uh, I reckon would, would be at the very top of that list. Yeah, that's true. If that was part of the original user stories, then you yeah, should have had a... Mm. Which, of course, brings us nicely to something that we have completely kind of not defined until oh, yeah. now, namely functional and non-functional testing. Okay. Yes. Can to elaborate? Sure, sure. Yeah, well, I mean, as the name says, functional testing. <laughs> testing the functionality. <laughs> Does, exactly. does does my average function actually calculate the mean? Yes or no? Um, and non-functional is how many of these averages can we, uh, say, calculate in a minute or a second or whatever. Right? That's, uh, could be a non-functional requirement. Say, oh, I want to be able to launder uh, 10 million bitcoins in five seconds for uh, the population of China or something. So function testing is ambitious, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Functional testing, as, as Martin rightly explained, is anything that that boils down to the original functionality of the MVP of the code base in terms of does it what it is supposed to do? In terms of we have defined functionality and does it do that? And any aspect outside this functional testing scope is actually called non-functional. So, as Martin already kind of touched upon scalability, how resilient is the code base, i.e. If, if we pull the plug on a number of servers, will the software still work? Mm. Which, of course, happens quite frequently in something called the dark net. Or dark well, web. Or, uh, or, or the cloud as well, even. Exactly. So servers mm. disappear and appear all, and reappear all mm. the time. So how does the software, how well does the software cope with this? As in, will it, will it continue to function? Will it just do a half-baked job in terms of will it loan us some money or mm. will it not, money, not loan us any money at all or will it just basically take a little bit of a dip uh, <laughs> but it still works? Mm. And also how well, for example, does the software detect that some part of its infrastructure is failing? Yeah, okay. And well, that's, that's yeah. We already kind of touched on, on on scalability or, for example, how well the software kind of reacts to somebody. I think this is the gray zone, right? If somebody bombards it with, with, with crappy requests, as mm. in just pumps it full with garbage, what happens? I reckon that's, I think that part is still a part of functional testing because if you pump it full with garbage, how does the software react yeah, to indeed, invalid indeed. entries? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, was there a story for this? Yes or no? Exactly. <laughs> if not, then you bugger, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I reckon, especially if you're talking about resilience software, this is a very important part of testing. How easy can you break the software in terms of if there's an, a malicious actor, same the beloved competition, that is also offering a money laundering service, you want to be careful that you anticipate the competition trying to trying to to send C4 your way in terms of let the software explode at the end of the day. So how well are you or is the software prepared for handling these things? Mm -hmm. Which nicely leads us to the to the very interesting subject of security. Uh, 
Well, uh, in terms of we, how at, at, some point, at some point we need to also address the open source angle. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, well, we still have four hours, Martin, so no nice. worries. <laughs> okay. No, I mean that becomes. I mean that becomes more and more important if you're talking about applications that do face the the the, the world web in terms of the mm. internet, i.e., are not running in an air gapped environment with without any outside interaction. No. If you're talking about a public-facing application using web servers, using middleware and so forth, you want to make sure that the attack surface, I'm going to explain what that is in a minute, is minimal. And the attack surface is actually something that anybody else can use to break the system Hmm. in terms of either break into the software to crash it, as in have the software malfunction or to simply take it down, or worse, enters the software and persuades the software or tries to persuade the software to do something it wasn't supposed to do. Typical example in a, in a Linux-based system, going back to the open source angle now, how easy can you elevate local user privileges in terms of you are in a shell. You're, you're, you're in a shell, user. I mean, yes, this is exactly. bad. You don't want to live there. <laughs> And how your application doesn't want to allow shell access. Wait, I'm, I'm, like I'm, going, I'm, I'm going back to the application in a minute, Martin. <laughs> okay. uh, I'm just using a familiar example. So, ah, shell, and, and quickly, how, how how quickly can you escalate it's a, a bash script uh, application? <laughs> exactly. How quickly can you escalate yeah. that shell to root privileges? Going back to the anti money laundering application. Mm. Uh, sorry, not, not anti money laundering, but <laughs> money laundering application. So, I'm getting confused myself now. Okay. Going back to the to the ML application. Um, this is a good application. Yeah, you put yeah, your money imagine, and nothing comes out. <laughs> exactly. Imagine you have an administrator mode where you can actually uh, control the flow of assets, can divert assets, and all the rest of it. Okay. So, needless to say, this administrator mode of that money laundering application should hmm. be well guarded to for obvious reasons. So that only a few selected individuals can actually use this administrative this administrative yeah, mode, yeah. because if that wasn't the case, it's, it, it, Word and Dark could do anything that they want with the application. Goes without saying. Yeah. Mm. So, and the idea behind that minimal attack surface is actually to make sure that never mind what you do with the application that it withholds, that it stands strong with regards to any attempt to break into that application and to escalate to that privilege level. Mm. Um, yeah, I have a question. Uh, how, what about, um, how do you build any, any anti-social engineering into there? That's actually more, I reckon, a process issue. So okay, somebody, <laughs> I reckon, I mean, if, I mean, if you have, for example, if you have a helpline guarding this application, so that actually customers can find mm. it and say, "Look, I just looked, I just looked, I just lost a billion euros because that wasn't laundered properly." Mm. Um, you want to make sure actually that that helpline is then guarded against any social engineering effort, or maybe somebody wants to reset the password. The usual case, essentially, mm. for that for that money laundering application. Some of it can be built into the software. So, for example, two-factor authentication comes to mind that people not just only end, have to enter a password, but also have to use a YubiKey or fingerprint reader or something else in order to authenticate against the application. Make, again, raising the bar with regards to unauthorized access. But I reckon the rest is then down to process improvements 
on a function level beyond the implementation of the beyond the implementation of the code base. So much for functional, non-functional testing, IT security, and, minim and, mini and minimizing your attack surface. Yeah. So okay. should we should we talk about some some tooling now before we close off the show? Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. What tooling would you like to talk about? Well, we can touch upon continuous integration, continuous deployment, um, mm -hmm. because I reckon. Uh, this is what you see at the hyperscalers left, right, and uh, left, right, and center that offer similar services for continuous integration. Uh, continuous what about um, uh, test automation? Yes. Um, normally, you would build the, you build you would build this into your say Jenkins uh, uh, into your pipeline in terms of, uh, if, mm. for example, Jenkins is a typical continuous integration tool where you simply have stages that gather all the source code from a version control system that trigger builds that build then passes an initial smoke test that's a smoke test in that case simply means uh, the software passes an initial test, test of use, use cases that determine would it make sense to continue the the quality assurance or is the build so crappy that we won't bother to perform the rest of the tests so assuming yeah. that the smoke test has passed, you would then execute your ordinary test harness. Hopefully that has been complemented for the new features that you have implemented. You would, uh, prior to the build, of course, you would probably take a look at the code coming from the source code repository in terms of doing static code analysis with a tool called, for example, such as SonarCube. SonarCube is able to take a look at the source code to detect so-called smells, i.e. portions of the source code that do not look like an immediate error, but have the potential to become one. Say, the strange use of pointers in C or C++ comes to mind, or the improper handling of variables in other programming languages. Normally, a good static code analyzer is able to identify these smells and to flag them. Needless to say, depending on 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 your internal guidelines, that you can also convince a static code analyzer to ensure that you have used the proper coding schemes for your programming language of choice. Some languages prescribe proper coding aspects more than other. Python, for example, comes to mind. So if you don't indent, indent properly in Python, you will have strange results. Let's put it this way. Or other programming languages with curly braces, they are normally the compiler takes care of uh, checking that your curly braces, for example, match and so forth. Yeah. Other than that, it's ba it basically boils down to your test harness in terms of what they, uh, how much you can automate with regards to testing and general QA, because essentially what you want to do is you want to have the human amount of quality of quality assurance in terms of software testing down to a minimum, because as we all know, humans are expensive, and <laughs> normally you would automate as much as possible of the overall software testing effort before you even go near about releasing a build. Yeah, fair enough. So. I only know a few actually test harness, open source test harness. I think there's something called GNU test. Of course, every program language offer or offers rather, not any, but 
most program languages offer some sort of testing framework. For mm. example, there's something called PyTest. In Python, yeah, there's PyTest for Python. There's, there's which uh, is quite good. Like Jamie for Java, and there's, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff like that, right? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. But I reckon that that helps you more more or less just for, just with with unit testing, right? Because this is what you would typically use on a on mm. a unit testing level. Yeah. But then you okay. could string them all together, and um, yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. Um, there, are, there are also kind of uh, fuzzy test frameworks, as I said. Links will be in the show notes. Mm. Now, Unless there's um, something you want yeah. to discuss, something in particular at the moment. Martin? Well, what we haven't kind of discussed is the most important point about open source and software quality, right? If you put, any, <laughs> if you put anything on GitHub, you want to make sure it compiles. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's the, uh, the, the you, you, you worked for these kind of companies before. <laughs> you like anyway, me, Martin. <laughs> um, now the, uh, the 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 most common or the one of the let's say good things about open source software is the fact that there are many people scrutinizing code or have the potential to scrutinize the code before it goes into various stages, pull requests, etc. People Absolutely. will um, you know, spend considerable time over before they are accepted, etc. So, uh, yeah. So, the important aspect of open source software is that um, it is available and anybody can find bugs and also fix them. I mean, that's the reason why, for example, software defect reporting mm. is an integral part of something called GitHub or GitLab for that matter. Mm. As in Git-based large-scale code repositories yeah. where you can simply then open an issue to stick with the GitHub example and then depending on, on your GitHub account and some other variables, that workflow behind the issue from the initial triaging right up to fixing is handled then by the project, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. including email communication and other tracking means. Yeah. Anything else before we head over to the boxes? Uh, good question. Good question. No, I think that's probably a pretty good uh, level overview of this fun topic and people in case we did forget anything the feedback uh, the feedback do we have oh, do we have feedback actually uh, do we have feedback uh, we do but there will be an upcoming episode where we ah, have yes. the amount of feedback that the we amount of feedback yes, yes the feedback episode sorry yes yes okay. exactly so mm. shameless teaser there will be an episode on the amagate uh, on the accumulated feedback very soon in terms of before the year's over because, but of course, we 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 want to leave the year open when we do the episode. No jokes aside, and um, we have planned the feedback episode before this Christmas, I think, if I'm completely mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. Okay, so over to the boxes, Martin. I suppose, All right. Before we wrap this up, yeah. Come on, what's your box? My pox is a series called Citadel. Yes, I watched that. I really enjoyed okay. it. Yes, the, so. yeah. The only, uh, the only, the only 
crazy. Wow, there are uh, some implementation details. <laughs> that are not quite that believable. I mean, I found it very good, but it was, I think the, the initial uh, season was only limited to eight, to eight episodes or something like this, right? So it wasn't that many episodes. But Martin, do, do explain what this is all about. Uh, what's this all about? This is about an organization that is beyond all the official government ones that, um, yeah, pretty much looks after the safety of the world, right? Yes. Uh, an FBI or CI splinter group, but that <laughs> kind of... Yeah. One, one that doesn't exist officially that... type exactly. of stuff. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that kind exactly. of idea. Very good. I liked it. I think IMDb gives it what seven stars easily or something like that. Oh, I don't know. It, uh, yeah, it was it was quite uh, entertaining. Yes. So I reckon you you've watched the whole season. Yeah, it didn't take very long indeed. Okay. My pox is actually for a change. Yeah, some young people. I, I won't mention their names because they <laughs> may or may not be listening. Alerted yeah. me to the fact that oh, there is actually a, is this to do with your Irish adventure? No, uh, no, 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 ah, not okay. at all. Not okay. at all. Alerted me to the fact that actually there is something meaningful on Instagram beyond oh, yes? oh, a beach pics and and cat videos and all the rest of it. Exactly, it's actually a Instagram account called Food for Thought Redux. It's pretty yeah. new, apparently. Links, of course, will be in the show notes. Whoever is behind this account publishes a picture a day with indeed a caption that is dependent ah, on the Ah, like one of those calendars. Thought. Yes. Yes, 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 more or less. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. I remember those. But, <laughs> For the young but, people amongst um, us, we used to have calendars. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you could hear them off, yes, but now it's yes, actually yes, on uh, on on Instagram and it's and it's mm. really food for thought at some stage. <laughs> Okay. Do you have one for us? I think today's picture was actually, and we're recording this on the what is it, twenty seventh of mm -hmm. July, if I'm completely mistaken. Was actually uh, the belated the corner, and the caption ah. was "May she be off to better places," because it, at this point in time, when we're recording this, it's still unclear why she died. And there's speculation out there that might suggest that this wasn't a natural cause of death. Wow, this, this apparently she was quite troubled. Yeah, apparently she was quite she was quite troubled during her fifty six mm. years of life. Yeah. If current coverage is anything to go by. Okay. Her son died about what two or three years ago? Yes, yeah, that's rather sad, of course. Yeah. So mm. indeed. Hmm. So okay. yeah, so that's the Instagram channel. And with that, yes, see we would like to thank you for one. listening. Mm, exactly, and see you soon. This is the Linux in-laws. You come for the knowledge, but stay for the madness. Thank, thank you, you for, for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Type attribution, share like. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margaret, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, 
And finally, to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You'll find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. <laughs>